It's now time for Punted, a podcast discussing the very latest in all things racing, including tips, giveaways and laughs. Here's your hosts, Scott McKinnon and Nathan Kendrick. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Punted Podcast. Scotty, we've got a special guest again this week, yeah, uh, Jim Clark. Jim Clark, yeah, Jim Clark of uh, Clark Bloodstock. So thanks for joining us, Jim. No worries, guys. Nathan, Scotty, good to be here. And I've been following you on social media the last sort of six to 12 months, Jim, and you've been pretty busy. You've been overseas uh, at the Keeneland sales. You've been over at the Tattersall sales and obviously Magic Million sales and English sales over here. So work's keeping you pretty busy. Yeah, it's been flat out. It's been a busy 12 months. Um, I mean, most of my work has really tended to be here in the domestic market, but I, I did used to go overseas a bit, probably a couple of times a year, and obviously during COVID that'll stop. But um, yeah, last year we I got over to um, Kentucky and Breeders' Cup and the mare sales there and over to the UK a couple of times as well. So it was good to get out and about again. Yeah, and for those who don't really know, the job of a bloodstock agent. Can you just give us a bit of a rundown of, of what you do and yeah, what your role is as a bloodstock agent? Yeah, for sure. So I guess um, as agents, we're really conduits for people wanting to get into the game or, or buy horses or sell horses. It's um, no real difference, I guess, to being a, a real estate agent in the housing market. Um, it, you know, our expertise is, is, is sort of based on experience in the industry, working uh, in training stables on stud farms, you know, being quite involved in, in matings of horses, um, stock selection, whether it be racehorses or, or breeding stock and brokering deals for, for people wanting to buy and sell. So it's pretty all-encompassing. Um, you do have touch points across every part of the industry. I guess no agent operates... Um, in the exact same way, but probably for the most part, 80% of my work would be as a buyer's agent as opposed to selling. A, a lot of the horses are sold through auction houses, um, but yeah, re- really a talent scout looking for racehorses or broodmares for people. Yeah, Jim, I guess, how did you get your start really with horses? Because they're not easy to run into, I guess when you run into them, you're stuck with them for a long time. How did you get into the industry? Yeah, I, yeah, I got in the industry when I was young. I, I grew up in a town called Chinchilla, about four hours west of Brisbane. Um, my family, my father's family in particular, were always quite keen on horses. They had cattle, uh, small cattle properties, and yeah, we had a hobby farm as a, as a child growing up. And uh, yeah, I guess a lot of family into it. My grandfather was a, a, the local dentist in Chinchilla, and he he trained a few horses out of his backyard as a bit of a hobby and. Uh, my uncle rode as an amateur. He won two Corinthian handicaps in Brisbane, which is a big amateur riders race. Um, and my father used to do a lot of riding himself and polo cross and various horse sports and did a lot of the breaking in you know, of my grandfather's racehorses. So when I was growing up, um, you know, we had ponies and things and did a lot of riding. And uh, yeah, I guess my father was pretty keen on the breeding side of the industry. And we often had one or two brood mares and you know, that lower level broodmares and just bred to race mainly on the country circuit. But um, I loved it. I loved horses. I loved riding and got into racing in a pretty big way just as a as a fan. And, um, 
you know, going to the races through my high school years. And then when I was at university, I, I rode track work for a trainer in Brisbane. Um, who's now training back at the Sunshine Coast, a, a guy called Sean Dwyer. And oh, his heyday. Yeah, so that was my first ever job, really, yeah. in the industry was mucking out stables for Sean in the mornings and um, strapping horses on the weekends. And at the time, he, he was flying. He had Regimental Gow, won a Magic Millions. He had a, yeah. a good horse called a Tarpy that I think started favourite at Doom and 10,000. And uh, Pacific Dance, I think it was his name in a Melbourne Cup. So he was one of the top trainers in Brisbane at the time, and, and he really gave me my start. And, um, yeah, I, I just I loved it and just kept working in it and did that during my university days and then just, just stayed in the game. Yeah, so I was going to say, how did you go from sort of that point of riding track work? Because I know you have a law degree under your belt as well, which was sort of a prerequisite to doing the Godolphin flying start. So what made you sort of steer away from the horses in, in the early sort of uh, teenage years after finishing school and, and go that route of potentially being a lawyer? Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be, I was at boarding school in Brisbane and loved it, loved boarding in particular, but, um, you know, probably was always going to do something at university. I didn't really know what. I, I, I started off doing a science degree, actually did that for a year and had sort of thoughts of, of trying to do vet science, but, um, yeah, my grades weren't good enough from memory and, and I ended up putting law down as my second option, you know, after my first year of uni and uh yeah didn't have any real passion for the law to be honest i really did it as a as a uh, means to an end to get a piece of paper under my name and and use it as a launch pad to getting into horses but um probably from my last year at high school the good off and flying start program which is you know now a very well established and well recognized course that was in its infancy and henry field who now runs newgate, newgate yeah. started and um a guy like Francis Graffard, who's a really successful trainer in France, actually trained um, very elegant when she went over there. So these guys were, were on the Flying Star course, and I saw it advertised, and it's basically like doing an MBA in horse racing and horse breeding, and um, it was advertised in the Australian newspaper. and uh, It was something that really piqued my interest as a sort of 17-year-old, 18-year-old wanting to get into the game and I, I, I could tell you needed some experience in the industry and, and really a, a tertiary qualification to be a chance. So I kind of set my heart on doing that and, um, yeah, just worked towards it through uni and, and my early jobs and um, yeah, was lucky enough to get a spot on it several years later. What was the experience like, Jim, and that get off? It looks unreal. Was it a great experience for you? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's really, and I've been very involved with it since I finished the course as well when I subsequently worked for Godolphin, but it's really is a life-changing, um, you know, life-changing thing. Um, it's, I think, you know, Sheikh Mohammed's the biggest, uh, the biggest owner, the biggest breeder worldwide in our industry, and he's had phenomenal success um, all over the world in, in breeding and in racing, but I think there's no doubt in my mind that the Flying Stark program will be the, the biggest legacy that he leaves our industry in the long term because the opportunity that he gives people every year to do this course is, um, you know, it's unrivaled. It's a, it's a, it's an expensive scholarship. You travel the world two years. You work on Sheikh Mohammed's farms in the mornings, yeah. um, do, you know, hands-on practical work with horses, and then in the afternoons you have lectures and 
complete academic modules um, on all all facets of the industry, and you get to see and do a bit of everything. You don't become an expert in anything, but you get to try everything out and get a, a baseline understanding of equine reproduction all the way through to anatomy, physiology, resources. So it's um, pretty all-encompassing program and a great launch pad for many young people's careers. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've seen, I think, Adrian Botts, uh, one of the uh, previous alumni from, from that program, as well as Jack Bruce, and obviously they've gone into the training ranks. Was there any sort of ambition or um, or anything along those lines to be a trainer for you, Jim? Yeah, so Body was a year, year above me, and Jack came a couple of years after me, and the one thing about the course is that you, you come out of it, you've, you know, it's like a two-year intense management training program where you touch on everything, but you're not a master of anything. And, you know, it's probably, you're under a lot of pressure to find a job because you basically get paid a living allowance on the course. You don't earn any money, though, so you always finish it without, a, um, you know, two bob to rub together and you're desperate to, to find to a paying find job to start yeah. paying off you. Your debts, but um, I, when I finished, I, I had two opportunities. I, uh, I was offered a job selling nominations for Dali in Victoria, uh, but at the same time, I was asked. Well, I met Bjorn Baker, and Bjorn had only just finished his first career of training in uh, first year of training in Sydney. He'd had a few years under his belt as as a partner of Murray's in New Zealand, but he'd started to kick a few goals in his first 12 months training in Sydney and he wanted someone to come in and, and essentially just be a right-hand man and work in the stables on the ground with the horses, get involved in jockey bookings, race programmings, going to sale, selling shares, social media. It was really a bit of everything and um, that really appealed to me. Uh, and fortunately, I took that job and, and things went well. You know, we had unencumbered in the first year, won the Magic Millions and mm-hmm. It kind of just built from there. We ended up with sort of 65 horses in training um, a couple of years later. And I guess during that time, you know, I'd really chosen to go down the, 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 the racing or training path, I guess, in the industry. Um, you know, I, I loved that side of it. Um, and uh, that was probably the direction I was headed in. But you never really know kind of what's around the corner. We we had sort of three or four years. I had three or four years with Bjorn, my wife. Um, she works... And certainly not in horse in a completely different industry in, in the finance industry. And she got asked to go to London for her her job. And, um, you know, my, my first reaction was that there's nothing for me to do in London, but it was a great <laughs> opportunity for her. So, um, yeah, I, I we moved over to London for a few years and, and that was probably a bit of a turning point for me in terms of whether I was going to train or not because I got out of that... Um, you know, hands-on, stable environment every morning for a few years. And, um, yeah, by the time I, I, I came back around to Australia, I'd, I'd taken a different path. Yeah, so what sort of, from that, obviously, that trip overseas to to England, so what sort of triggered in your mind that the bloodstock route was the way you wanted to go? Um, well, when I, when I did get to England, I, I got a job with Godolphin um, and, you know, it was certainly helpful having done that flying star course, but I, I knew the people, I, not well, but I knew, you know, some of the management staff there. I ended up getting a, a role. Initially, it was a sort of broad marketing brand development role for Godolphin where I was, you know, involved in all sorts of weird, wonderful things to do with Dubai and um, and, and Sheikh Mohammed's sort of passion for racing. But 
after sort of 12 months, I ended up working directly for uh, John Ferguson, who was the chief executive of Godolph, and he'd been Sheikh Mohammed's sort of right-hand man for 25 years on the, on the on the horse front. And I moved up to Newmarket, just outside of Cambridge, which is the home of British racing, and uh, worked for John for probably three years in a, a really broad role. And that was it was a very different role to what I was doing in Sydney as a sort of racing manager, assistant trainer for Bjorn. I was very involved in stallions and broodmare populations and, um, you know, acquisitions of, of horses at a high level. You know, during those few years, we bought Harry Angel uh, as a horse in training. Yeah. He went on won a couple of group ones and um, Ribchester and, yeah, a, num- a number of really good racehorses that we bought privately. But uh, we also bought stallions. Um, to stand under the Dali banner, we were, you know, you know, mares, populations moving around between Europe and Japan and Europe and Australia and and was very involved in sending a number of tried horses out here. Vilius came out and won a Group 1 and um, a horse called Best of Days won a Group 1 and, and a horse called Home of the Brave came out and won a Group 2. So we had, you know, I, I was involved in a bit of everything and it was a global role and I was on a plane most weeks, but... Um, yeah, it was certainly out of the hands-on horsemanship, more into a bloodstock management kind of space, and um, yeah, that's that's the path I've ended up going down. Yeah, you've obviously been around a lot of good horses, Jim. In recent times, your old mate Bjorn Baker trained a group one with a Rapaho. That would have been a big thrill for you too. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah, so you know, when I came back and started on my own as an agent, it was sort of stepping into the unknown. I guess the timing was probably, you know. Worked in my favour a little bit too because Bjorn had, uh, he'd stable and his success had grown while I was over in Europe. And when I came back, he was looking for someone to give him a hand, you know, identifying horses to purchase for the stable. So that was my first client, I guess, as an agent. Um, and we had a, a yearling season together and started buying a few tried horses from Europe. And Arapaho was one of our first overseas purchases and he took a took a while to get into gear he, he he showed a little bit early on he had a couple of runs at you know his first prep he ran on midfield in that race called the coast that was actually on last week at gosford yeah yeah um but uh he was a long way away from winning a, a wait for age mile in a quarter group one that's for sure um it's a funny story actually he had a couple of preps he came back in trialed a couple of times and was pretty plain he sort of wasn't trialing all that well and Bjorn tipped him out and we were a long way behind I mean we were in terms of these European acquisitions he wasn't the most expensive horse he did have very good form in France but he was sold during COVID and he just ended up in an obscure sale in Arcana at the end of November Um, but yeah we were a long way away from being in front on him and tipped him out and brought him back and he had a couple of runs and I remember he said to me he'd run third or fourth in a Musselbrook Cup yeah. and then he ran him in the Tamworth Cup and he's not much of a tipster Bjorn but he said to me he said this Arapo is running the Tamworth Cup he said they won't beat him he's 25 to 1 just get as much on as you can he said It'll, you'll be able to pay a house deposit off if you have enough on so he's dead set declared it and he was 25 to 1. I reckon he shortened from 25s into 21s or something. And he jumped, sat third defence, did no work, box seated, got to the corner, gap opened up, the heavens opened up, and he literally just stopped and fell at the back of the TV screen <laughs> and beat him home. So he's dead set tailed off, and the only time he's ever told me to back one. And he said, oh, well, that didn't work out. So he sort of ended up 
not not as a forgotten horse, but he went to Hawkesbury then, and he might have run fourth on a track with a bit of give in it, and then he was still fifty to one that day, thirty fifty to one, and then he ran him on a, I think it might have been at Rose Hill or Randwick, on a bog track, and he literally won by ten at thirty to one. Yeah, of course, I, I didn't know. have a cent on him that day, and that sort of set him off on a, on a bit of a streak. He he went up to the Clounder and second the Clounder Cup. He won yeah. the Grafton Cup and. Sort of worked his way back to Sydney, won the Premier's Cup, and um, I think he was 15, 14th up or something in the Melbourne Cup by the time. <laughs> I was going to say, he, Bjorn, got, he went around the joint. <laughs> he was a war horse. I think Bjorn figured out that after they'd gone 200 metres in the Melbourne Cup, he'd run 30 k's for the prep. <laughs> and, and, and Bjorn joked to me after it. He said, I reckon I just left him half a run short. So, <laughs> And he's on a Melbourne Cup campaign uh, this time, uh, this year as well too. Look, so. he's, he's probably, yeah, like after the Tancred, he, he was in the market for the Sydney Cup. He was probably yeah. 12 or 13 to 1, and he got a gun run. He was the last horse off the bridle. He looked the winner on the corner, yeah. but he just doesn't get too mi- get a strong two strong miles. Trip, yeah. He's, yeah. yeah, his best trip, I think, is 2,400, like even 2,000, but... um. Yeah, he just doesn't quite see out that last bit, the two-mile race. So, he obviously, look, he drew a bad gate in the Melbourne Cup, and he was, you know, 100 to 1, and they paid prize money down to 12th, and I think Bjorn essentially rode him to, to run 12th or to run as best <laughs> as he possibly could, and he ran 11th, so it worked yeah. out all right. But, um, yeah, I think the Sydney Cup, you know, in my view anyway, and I think Bjorn would agree, two miles probably sees him out. So, we'll probably... His aim is going to be the Caulfield Cup, and he'll just yeah, work yeah. back from that. No, that'll be a nice race for him. Um, on the sales sort of side of things, Jim, like you have the sales that you attend, Magic Millions, Inglis, uh, all those sort of sales, but where do you start from a bloodstock point of view? Um, obviously, the January sale at, at um, Gold Coast um, for Magic Millions, there's a thousand odd horses in the catalogue. So, where do you start from that point of view? Yeah, so it does vary sale to sale. A lot of my work is in the yearling market. Um, and, uh, you know, Bjorn's obviously a big client. I've done quite a bit of work um, for, for Stewie, as you know, Nate. Yeah. And, um, you know, then I've got some clients that, that own horses themselves outright as well. Um, but what the yearling market, Magic Millions, the major yearling sales. So if you look at Magic Millions, Caraca, Classic, Premier and Easter, um, I... I I would tend to look at every horse in those sales. So the Magic Millions, for example, 1,000 horses catalogued, 800 on in book one. I'd start in the second week of December on the farms in the Hunter Valley and up in Queensland and, and look at as many as I can. And By the time the horses get to the complex in early January, 10 days out from the sale, I've probably seen maybe two-thirds of them. Um, and then the, the ones that I haven't seen, look at them and, and then go through and second looks and third looks and so on. And really from that, from the 1st of January onwards, it's flat out. You finish at the Gold Coast, you're on a plane, you go straight to the Hunter Valley to look at as many classic horses as you can on the farms. And then from there, you go to New Zealand for the New Zealand sale, you come back and go to the classic sale. I tend to go to Perth as well. Um, then you roll into Melbourne and back up to Gold Coast for the March sale, back down to Easter. So it's a bit of a roller coaster those first four months. You're just literally looking at horses pretty much all day, every day. Um, but, yeah, that's the, the yearling market is, is the 
probably the focus of my time and attention, certainly for the first half of the year, first four months of the year. Yeah, I guess with it slowing down for the year now, after all the big sales are basically over now, what you could do in the spare time, Jim? You got any hobbies or...? Yeah, well, we're sort of we're over yearling sales, but broodmare sales and weanling sales are in the thick of that at the moment. So that doesn't really finish until early June. So I head down to the Gold Coast next week, start looking at weanlings. After that, it's um, it certainly quietens down a lot. And when I do a bit of spare time, I like to play a bit of golf. I'm, yeah. I'm a hack. I've got a handicap of about 28 on a good day. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I enjoy getting out there and just... Getting getting in the fresh air and cruising around and, and hitting some balls, so that's a bit of fun. Uh, I've got two young kids; they keep me pretty occupied as well when I'm when I am home. So um, yeah, between those two things, it's still pretty busy. And you've spent up in the last sort of six to twelve months, Jim. Have you got any horses that you've bought over that period of time that you're really looking forward to seeing at the races? Ooh, that's an interesting one. You put me on the spot there. <laughs> there. I've got a few nice horses that um, that are up and trialling and ready to go. We've got we've got a horse running in a um, it's called the Spirit of Boom Classic on yeah. Saturday up here in Brisbane. A horse called Thunder Lips. He's a Zoo Star Colt and he won in debut and was second to Dipsy Doodle in Sydney last Saturday. Um, got a nice pariah colt of all things that's um, trialled very well in Sydney. A horse called Joey Dior. So he's not too far off making his debut. Um, we bought a nice filly, or she's a man now, in Europe last year for a Queensland-based client. She's with Steve O'Day and Matt Hoisted. She's an older mare that's got a bit of black type on her pedigree already. She's about to kind of kick off into the trials in the next few weeks. Her name's Show of Stars. So, yeah, there's, there's you know, nice, nice horses coming out, yeah, in the next, next little while, hopefully. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And um, we did a little bit of a post on our Instagram just to see if people had some questions for you as well because we sort of had trainers and jockeys and those sort of guests on. But what do you, what would you narrow it down to for, for buying a horse? What would be the three things you narrow it down to that you look at? Uh, budget's a starting point, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> sure. there's no point looking at a cult that's going to make half a million yeah. if you've got a budget of, of 100, right? So... Budget's probably the first thing. You know, there's always a big debate between pedigree and physique and, and what's more important. Um, the My answer to that is very much dependent on the client, what they're looking for. If you're looking for a filly that you want to breed from down the track, then you've probably got to put a bit more emphasis on pedigree. If you just want a horse that you think can go and win a race or win races or be a good race horse, then you can probably emphasize type a little bit more. You know, probably the biggest mistake I made looking back in my first year was um, you know, I probably just put too much emphasis on physique and not enough emphasis on pedigree. And I bought a lot of very, very good looking horses that were extremely slow. Yeah, and, you know, slow. looking back on that now, there's, you know, they're still good looking horses, but there's five dams on the page and there's no black type horses and they're by a stallion that's sort of 1% stakes when it's to runners. And you look back at it now and you think, you know, how could I have ever made that mistake? But, um, yeah, I probably have leaned back a little bit more towards pedigree over the last few years just because, you know, I think it's the one constant in our game. You know, horses from good families, they just keep popping up and it very much depends who you're buying for. Like, I, I have to be quite strict on confirmation and, and the reason why is because 
Bjorn's quite strict on confirmation when I'm buying yearlings for, for him. His stable, if he ever has problems, it's with knees. So we're very strict on knee confirmation in particular. But, you know, other people train on different tracks and train in different ways would be far more forgiving on certain things. So it depends on budget, who you're buying for and what the purpose is. But um, I'd say as a, as, a, as, a, as a rule, I'd be putting 50% emphasis on pedigree and 50% emphasis on um, physique. And... Uh, what is your favourite, probably stallion, uh, broodmare stallion, or even first season stallions coming through? Have you got any uh, favourites at the moment? My favourite stallion, I think, so you think he's yeah. um, like you know the thing I love about him, he's had Group One winners from twelve hundred metres to two miles. He's had his fillies have been equally as good as his colts. So there's no sex bias, and some people do believe there is has or can be a sex bias, particularly with that high chaparral start, uh, stallion line. But, you know, he's he's a very, very good stallion. Um, I find them to be very good value in the yearling market because they don't Need tend to get time. the yeah. big... Yeah, they're not always the big, sexy, good-looking, yeah. strong, close-coupled, sprinting two-year-old types that yeah. they like here. You know, if you're prepared to buy them and look at them as a three-year-old, you know, miler, then you can get really good value buying one of his progeny, in my view. I've had good luck with him. Um, so he's a, he's of the proven brigade. He's the one that I'm most keen on. Um, the first season stallions is always a, a, a bit of a tricky one. You know, I I, I piled into written by last year, and and um, you know at the moment, uh, the you know the ones I've bought, we haven't had any runners. We've got one nice colt that's showing plenty of promise, but he's a fair way down the the first season stallion table at the moment behind horses like justify which i wouldn't have been overly keen on so yeah. i tread very carefully on 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 the first season horses of the young horses of the ones with with um weanlings this year i i'd like the farnans that i've seen but it's a very small sample size so it's probably hard to pin my mask to anything this early um but yeah i'd probably certainly have a bit more of a preference of proven horses than unproven now, Jim, we're a punted podcast, obviously. Are you any good on the pun? I'm shocking. Like, I'm worse than Bjorn. I am. Yeah. I, I'm just, I just, I, I can't look at it objectively, to be honest with you. It's, um, Bjorn's got money I'm, coming I'm out really of his ears after the quaker. Coming after the quaker, ears, yeah, yeah, yeah. He would yeah, yeah, trust me. He, he dropped a, he's dropped a fair bit on the ground over the years, too, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> But no, I'm not. I, it's I, I I enjoy it. I like having a bet when I go to the races. But I tend to bet on, um, yeah, I bet with my heart, not with my head. If that yeah, makes yeah. sense. I'm a bit the same. If I think there's something I've bought that's got a chance, I'll back it. And usually the market will be telling the story and they run accordingly. But um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's not something I'd profess to be any any expert on. That's for sure. Yeah. So Jim, on that note, uh, have you got anything that you can put sort of put a little bit of a tip forward? For this weekend, for the punters listening, obviously you mentioned that one of Bjorn's uh, in the Spirit of Boom Classic. Is it a decent chance? Uh, yeah, look, he's definitely a chance. He's he's shown good talent. He's obviously only had the two runs. He was probably a touch unlucky not to really be closer the day he was second by Dipsy Doodle. He jumped really well. Um, Rachel elected to kind of give up the lead and looked to drop a rein or he just ducked out in the last 50 metres. Um 
So he's probably could have finished a touch closer to win of that day. I would have liked him to draw a softer gate on Saturday. He's drawn nine of 11. If he'd drawn inside five, I'd be a bit more confident. And look, it's a decent race too. But um, yeah, Josh Parr riding Saturday, um, I think he's, you know, he's seven to one, I think, in the opening of the market. I'd say that's probably his right price. I can't see him really shortening off that quote. Um, there's some pretty nice horses in it. O'Day's horse, Happen Girls, obviously. Yeah, smart. Two from two and looks pretty promising. And the horse that actually finished behind Thunderlips in Sydney the other day, two casts, is a, a nice trapeze artist cult that got back and ran on. And, you know, a few other Snowden horses. That have, he's got a couple of runners in the race. So it's not going to be easy. Um, I'm, I'm not confident he's going to go and towel them up by any means. But I do expect him to run pretty well. Just would have preferred him to have a slightly softer gait. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for coming on, Jim. All the best for the rest of the year. Good luck with that Caulfield Cup. Go Arapahoe. But, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jim. No worries. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, See mate. You, mate. Bye.